right, let me see Arlington, and it's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, if you got a Bible, go ahead and head to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 24 and 25 this morning. And so if you've got a Bible, you're looking for Hebrews, Hebrews is closer to the end of your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, no worries. Um, the, 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 the passage will actually be on the screen this morning. So let's do this. As we dive in, I'm going to take a moment to pray. All right. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And the only reason why we're able to love you is because you first loved us. We are recipients of your never stopping, never giving up love. And you desire not simply for us to receive your love, but also to reflect your world, to reflect your love to a watching world. Father, you desire for us to hear your word today and to be encouraged and to encourage one another to go out into the world as your conduits. So, Father, will you help us to do that today? Will you help us to respond to your word? May we not just hear it and forget about it. May we not just hear it and critique it. May I not get in the way of what you want to do today. But Father, may we hear your word and like your word falling on fresh soil. May we hear it, may we receive it, and may we do it. We can't do it on our own, God, we need you. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. If you agree, say amen, amen. Hey guys, so my, uh, my wife and I, so we, we don't watch uh, too much uh, TV together, uh, but we did watch a show that we picked up uh, during the pandemic and it's the show um, called Alone. I don't know if you've ever seen this show, the show Alone. Uh, it's a great show, and the show is honestly just like it sounds, right? And so you got these contestants. These contestants get dropped off by themselves in some harsh, unforgiving environment with a whole lot of wild animals. And me and my wife, we would sit on the couch eating snacks, um, um, discussing with each other what we would do if we were them, right? So that, that, that's what our uh, watching this show consisted of, right? And so the whole point of the show is all about who's going to last the longest. And as the show goes on, you start to see people drop off for the, for the understanding, for, the, for reasons that are understandable, right? Some people dropped off because they were hungry. Some people dropped off because they were hurt. But there was another reason why many people dropped out of the show, and I'm sure this reason was a reason that many of these contestants actually thought about before they got on the show. They thought that they could push through this reason and they were incredibly um, wrong. And so interesting on this show that more often than not, people dropped out because they were lonely. People dropped out because they missed their communities. They missed their families. It became unbearable for them to exist outside of the context of a community of people. And what is true about this show is also true of life. You cannot live life in the way that you've, that you've been intended to live it. You cannot flourish at this thing called life without people beside you, without people in your corner. And for so many of us, we actually think we can. For so many of us, we're like these idealistic contestants on the show alone. You think that your solitude is something that you can simply adapt to and live in. And for so many of us, the reason why we think that is because people have hurt us in the past. That's so many of us. For many of us, we've been in communities, whether that's a specific family 
whether that's some group or whether that's even a religious community, like a church. And those people or those communities have wounded you deeply. And because that has happened, people feel dangerous. And for so many of us, in response to that, we tell ourselves, listen, if living close to people means that I might get hurt again, I'm just going to adapt to being solo. I'll be fine. But here's the issue. You won't be fine. <laughs> here's the issue. You won't be fine. Why is that? Because as the saying goes, and I'm going to put it on the screen so you know this. We are wounded in community, but we are also healed in community. We're wounded in community, but we're also healed in community. Hear me today. You, you might not be healed in the same community that wounded you. But one thing is for sure, you will not be healed by going solo. We are made for community. Think about this. When God created the world, it was not completely good until he created community. When God created the, 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 the thing, all the things that we see, the sun and the stars, he flung those into space. He said, good, good, good. He created, he, he created man, very good. And then all of a sudden, he saw man by himself and he said, not good. What did God make? He made community. It is not good for man to be alone. And that's been the case every single since, ever, ever, ever since. Community is how God's people survive. It's how we survive, y'all. If you are a believer in Christ, you cannot survive on your own. You need people. And we need to remind each other and challenge each other to keep going. Because if we don't, as soon as life shin checks us, with things like temptation, grief, loss, or pain, if we don't have people around us encouraging us, guys, we'll just throw in a towel. We'll quit this thing called the Christian life. And so to that end today, I want to talk about the importance of community. I'm going to focus on two verses of this morning, and that's going to be Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. So let me read them. It says this. It says, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this is the word of God. So honestly, today is not going to be all these neat points that I come up with. I'm going to simply spend time walking um, through this text. But first, let me actually set it up and let me explain to you what's happening here. So in Hebrews 10, the writer is explaining how Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for our sins, that we are able to now have access to a holy God, to the God of the universe, because Jesus shed his blood for us. And if you have trusted in Jesus, you can now know to the depths of your very soul that God is not angry with you. But you can know this, that God no longer has any issues with you. That because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, God looks at you with the same approval, with the same love, with the same affection that he looks at that, 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 as he looks at his own son. That because of the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary, we are under the gaze of a God that when he looks at us, his heart is bursting towards us with love and compassion. Do you know this? If you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear this this morning. That God has made a way for you to be made right with him. He has. 
And that is in what Jesus Christ has done for you. And my question is this, how would your life change if you truly believe that? If you truly believe that when God looks at you, he doesn't see a failure. That when God looks at you, he doesn't see a screw up. That when God looks at you, he doesn't see someone that he can't wait to get his hands on. But that when God looks at you, that when you stand before him, that you can stand before him in confidence, like Hebrews 10, 19 tells us. What if you should believe that when the holy God looks at you, that his heart can barely contain the love and the joy and the compassion that he has towards you? What would your life look like? Well, your path, this passage of scripture actually tells us what would happen if you truly believed that. So in this larger passage, we actually see three things that we would have freedom in if we truly believe in the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so I want to talk about these three, even though the passage that we're in only really talks about one. And so the author from verse 19 through 25, he pretty much says that in light of what Jesus has done for us, he says, let us three times. The first time he says, he says, let us draw near. And what that means is this, is that because of the gospel, listen, we don't got to hide from God anymore. We don't have to hide from him anymore. We can freely come to him. We can freely confess our sin and we can expect to no longer find his wrath, but to find grace. You are free now to live in intimacy and closeness with God. He says, let us draw near. But not only that, he also says, let us hold fast. We are free to hold fast, meaning this, that we are now free to trust the promises of God, no matter how life uh, no matter how hard life gets. I want y'all to hear me this morning. When you are in Christ and you believe in the gospel, you realize something. You realize that the difficulty of life is not an indication that God has changed his mind about you. I'm going to say that one more time because I think there's somebody in this room that actually needs to hear this. Hear me this morning. When you trust and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that means that the difficulty of life, no matter how hard life gets, the grief, the drama, the pain, the difficulty of life is not an indication that God has somehow changed his mind about you. Our God is faithful. His promises are true. No matter what, we can trust him. But today we're focused on verse 24. And it's the last let us. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, meaning this, hear me, when you understand that you, are a lo- that you are loved and approved of by the God of the universe, the infinite, all-powerful God who flung the galaxies into existence, that this God loves you and approves of you, guess what happens? Nobody else's approval matters more than his. You are free from the tyranny of other people's opinions. And when you truly understand this, this verse says you are now free to do something. You are now free to no longer be fixated on yourself. You are no longer free. You are free to no longer be fixated on yourself. The gospel actually frees you to focus on other people. We are free to stop spending all of our time and all of our mental space considering ourselves because honestly, that's our bent. That's what we do. We walk around saying, what about me? And y'all, a life spent walking around saying, what about me is a depressing life. It really is. And yet 
What happens when you believe in the gospel is this, is that Jesus comes in. He satisfies your soul with the thing that your soul desperately needs. He fills you up so that we no longer have to walk around saying, what about me? And now our hands are actually free to think about, man, what about other people? What about you? Y'all, we are free to, as verse 24 says, we are free to consider. That means to fix your mind on or to constantly think about how to stir one another up to love and good works. Y'all, that word stir up actually means to provoke or agitate. And you might look at that phrase, stir up. And if that means to provoke or agitate, you might think, man, that's the last thing I want to do to somebody, right? But, but let me explain to you actually what that means. Like when we think about provoking somebody, we think about somebody who's intentionally trying to ruin your peace. Like we're thinking about somebody who's intentionally trying to annoy you. Like I've shared this story before. I used to have a roommate that it seemed like his mission was to like watch me squirm, right? To annoy me. Right. And, and watch me be annoyed. So he would do dumb stuff like he would go around the house and he would hide all of my left shoes. <laughs> or he would like go to the TV and remove the HDMI cord and just watch me fiddle around with the remote. Right. He found pleasure in annoying me and watching me get frustrated. And I'm here to tell you that that's not what stir up means. Stir up does not mean to annoy a peaceful person. And this verse, stir up, actually means to shake a drowsy person. It means to shake a drowsy person. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been in a situation in which, in which every time you get in this situation, it immediately leads you to get drowsy? Some of y'all are looking at me and you're like, Eric, I'm in that situation right now. I'm hearing you preach. I'm drowsy. Ha, 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 whatever. But for me, that situation is uh, long drives. If there's any kind of drive that's over two hours, I'm automatically, I'm getting tired, I'm ready to go to sleep. And so my family knows around the two hour mark, I'm calling to the back seat for anybody who wants to take the wheel because I'm going to sleep. I'm calling out Janique, Eli, Roman, who wants to drive because I'm, 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 I'm going to sleep, right? And what I love about this text is this, is that this text implies that every single human being who lives, lives in a situation that will make you drowsy. It will make you spiritually drowsy. And that situation and that circumstance is what? It's life in this world. Life in this world will make us drowsy to the, deep, to the biggest thing that your soul needs. The biggest thing that your soul needs, the satisfaction that your soul has been craving for, this is what you need. You need to drink deeply from the well of God's love. This is what your soul is thirsty for. Your greatest need is to receive the love of God and to display this love to the world. And this verse says that we need a community in order to help us do that. This, this verse is saying, let us consider how to stir one another up to love, to receiving God's love in the deepest places of who we are and to good works. Meaning this, that we need to be shaken to remember that God's love is our deepest need and expressing his love through good works is our greatest task. This is what we need. God to stir one another up towards good works. That honestly means that we should be a community of mercy and justice. 
that our love, that when we experience God's love, we don't keep it to ourselves. God desires to use um, that love that he puts in us to express love to a watching world, to be a part of his effort to heal creation. I love how Cornell West talks about justice. That scholar Cornell West actually said, and I think he's right here. He says, justice is love in public. Justice is love in public. And we need to be stirred up to remember this. Why is that? Because the culture of our world often runs counter to the culture of the kingdom of God. And if we're not careful, we will grow drowsy and we'll drift away from God's purposes in our lives. Our culture of overwork will make us drift. It will make us believe that our greatest need is not God's love, but it's the love of other people. And, you, and it will tempt you to believe that you get that love by working hard, making money, and seeing other people as your rivals. Our cultural tribalism will tell you that your greatest need is not God's love, but other people's love. And you get that by never challenging your own tribe and seeing everybody else not as rivals, but as enemies. Our culture of individualism will tell you that your greatest need is not God's love, but it's you loving yourself. And that you get that by following your own heart. You get that by never questioning your heart. And other people, they're not objects of God's love anymore. They're just minor characters in the drama of your life that's all about you. And God is saying, listen, all of that is untrue. Don't grow drowsy to the fact that your greatest need is God's love and other people are potential recipients of God's love through you. Y'all, our world would make us drowsy to the wonder of God's love. And God has given each of us to each other as co-pilots to shake us when we get drowsy to alert us to our calling. We're called to provoke, to gently shake each other, to receive God's love and to reflect the love of God. And we need this. And this is why community is a gift. And this is why in this passage, there is no accident that when the writer talks about stirring one another up towards love and good works, right after that, he talks about Christians gathering with one another. And this is why, y'all, you can't hope to consider people that you never see. You can't hope to consider people that you never see. Because here's the thing. Our lives are bent towards considering ourselves. Our lives are bent towards simply considering the people who are closest to us. Our lives are bent to simply consider the people who are like us. But when we live in community as the people of God, we have the opportunity to consider people that we otherwise wouldn't. So here's my question, y'all. Look around the room. Who are the people that you know that you would not consider if you did not regularly see them? Don't stare at them, though. Don't make it obvious. <laughs> but the beautiful thing about that is the community of opposites and people who don't fit together. When we begin considering one another and stirring one another up towards love and good deeds, it's the community of the church filled with opposites, united by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the community that's going to change the world. So what if we did that? What if Christian lawmakers in our church body and Christian unwed single mothers got together and actually thought, how do we encourage one another and stir each other up towards love and good works? What if that happened? Y'all, don't you think that certain policies would change as a result of that? By us not living in silos? 
What if the Christian elderly and young kids thought this way? Don't you think our perceptions of each other might change? What if family and lifelong singles got together and considered how do we stir each other up towards love and good works? Don't you think the way that we think about family, the way that we think about community might change? Y'all, Christian community is our opportunity to consider one another and to give witness to the beauty of the kingdom of God. This is a great thing. Let's keep walking through the verse. It says, verse 24 again, it says, let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Let's pause there. I'm going to zoom in on the word habit. And the reason why is this, it's because in our year 2024, especially in the past decade, there's been a revival of interest in the concept of habits, right? So many books on the market, Atomic Habits, Tiny Habits, all these books have habits in them, right? And, and, and it's so interesting is that people are reviving to the fact that habits shape us. We're beginning to understand that we are our habits, that we are what we repeatedly do. And in this text, we actually see people uh, get the habit of not gathering with other believers. Like this habit is being formed in them. And so in the book of Hebrews, it's likely that these people stopped gathering together because the church of Jesus Christ started becoming unpopular. They started experiencing persecution. And there's many people um, in, in, in that context that reason, hey, you know what? I'm going to step back for my own safety, but I'm going to go back when things die down. I'm going to go back. And because we're habit-forming creatures, they never made it back. So that, that's possibly a reason. What it was, was it was a conscious decision to not gather that eventually became a habit. It became automatic. Or maybe that wasn't the reason. Maybe for many of these believers, there were just other things that were important to them. There were things that they loved more. There were other concerns that crowded out, crowded out the habit of living in community. Whatever the reason is, the text told, tells us that they form a habit. But hear me this morning. Here's the issue with habits. We form habits, then habits form us. We form habits, then habits form us. Here's the thing. All of us have habits. None of us are neutral. And our habits shape our future. Our habits turn us into the person that we'll become. Uh, I love this author, Justin Whitmell Early. He writes a book called The Common Rule. He says this about habits in his book. He says, we have a common problem. By ignoring the ways habits shape us, we've assimilated into a hidden rule of life. When he says rule of life, he's talking about a way of living. And it's the American rule of life. This rigorous program of habits, the American rule of life, forms us in all the anxiety, depression, consumerism, injustice, and vanity that are, so temple, that are so typical of contemporary American life. We desperately need a set of counterformative practices to become the lovers of God and neighbor that we were created to be. Hope you hear what he's saying here. That you're not neutral. That you have habits in every single moment of your life. Your habits are being shaped. And if you simply allow yourself to coast, you will coast to become, um, you, will, you will coast to accept the American rule of life. And what we need is some intentional counterformative practices that will actually transform us 
into, uh, into Christian community. All this to mean this. If you want to be formed into a disciple of Jesus Christ, into a person of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, you will only get there through the means that God has given. And God and his sovereign power has determined that one of the means that he desires to use to form us into the image of his son, Jesus, is Christian community. You can't get around it. But let me be clear here. I'm not saying that if you go to church all the time, you'll necessarily be transformed. But what I am saying is this, as to we, if we hope to be transformed by the spirit of God, it would do us well to place ourselves in the path that the spirit is moving. And one of the places that the spirit has determined that he will move is when Christians come together. This is true. Let me give you an example by way of analogy. A couple of years ago, an Arlington member took me out on a boat to go sailing. And this wasn't one of those speed boats that all you did was you have a, a, a boat and a rudder. Now, this is one of those boats where, like, he had a whole bunch of sails, right? And so, man, I'm like, all right, cool. This is interesting. I ain't never been in a boat like this. And so I get on the boat with this guy, and uh, I felt useless, right? Because as soon as we got out on the water, I didn't know what to do. But he's, like, feverishly working. Like he's moving all around the boat. He's pushing sails around. He, he, he's raising sails. He's lowering sails. He's pushing them all around. He's working. But what's interesting is this. It's this. All his work wasn't what caused the boat to move. Him moving around sails, him raising sails, him lowering sails, that wasn't the thing that caused the boat to move. Raising the sails only put the boat in position for it to catch the wind that would move the boat. So it's not his work that moved the boat, it's the wind that did it, right? I'm gonna bring it home to us. If we want to be formed in the way of Jesus, we need to feverishly work to raise the sails in our lives and believe that the Spirit's gonna send the wind. This is what sanctification is. And one of the ways, or one of the sails that we raise so that the spirit will blow his wind to transform our lives is Christian community. You will not be transformed without raising that sail. Our spiritual lives are stunted if we forsake this. And so I want to encourage you, don't give that up. Don't give it up. Let me say something here. Y'all, we often overestimate what one gathering will do and underestimate what a thousand would do. We often expect to come to community and have an incredibly transformative experience the first time we show up. And God can do that. That could happen. But more than likely, you will experience change not through one gathering, but through many. It's the ongoing habit of gathering together and singing praises to God and hearing them speak through his word and gathering around living rooms all around our city that God transforms our lives. One author actually put it well. He said it this way. He said, it's not one sermon that changes your life, but the thousand sermons you hear over a decade. It's not the one worship experience that forms you, but the weekly rhythm of refocusing your heart and mind on the God who made you as you praise the Savior who redeemed you and sits the spirit who's indwelled you. Hear me today. Don't underestimate what many gatherings can do to shape your soul. But let me say something else as well. Too many of us we think that we know 
the kind of Christian community that we need in order for us to grow. And what I mean by that is that often we come to communities like this and we're just like, yo, I just want to be in community with people in my same life stage. I just want to be in a community in which people share my same job or have my same relationship status or look like me. And this is what I want to do. And I know that that's the kind of community that I can exist in and only that for me to grow. And that's us. And listen, let me tell you, I disagree with that. And this is what I mean. There are many times in your life that you're going to come to a gathering of believers and you're going to feel like the oddball in some way. You're going to show up to a group one week and you're like, man, everybody here is married and I'm single or vice versa. You're going to show up to a gathering and you're like, man, I have this certain background and these people don't. I get that. I, and, and I get how that can feel like that could, that could feel like a reason for me to bail. But can I tell you that actually might be a reason for you to lean in and experience the, the joy of building a relationship with people in which all you got in common is Jesus. That's the reason. I'm not saying that it's easy, but I'm saying it is worth it. It is worth it. There is a beauty of forming relationships with people and building it on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. And one of the worst things that you can do is come to Christian community practicing the American rule of life of consumerism. One of the worst things that we can do is to come to church and practice consumerism. We come and our first thought is, I can't find people who are like me. And God wants to teach us that his church, that Christian community, is not something that we conceive, it's something that we receive. We don't decide who we receive. When God saves somebody, he puts them in a family, and we say, God, by faith, I'm going to trust that these people are a gift to me. And I'm going to live with them, even when it's hard. Let's keep going. Right? We'll go home on this. So let's keep reading the verse. It says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the verse is saying, listen, man, we gather together. We encourage one another. We provoke one another towards love and good works. And then it says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. And it's likely that the writer of Hebrews had in mind the second coming of Jesus Christ. That we're doing this, that we're going through all the drama and the pain of encouraging one another and bearing one, one another's burdens and, 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 and displaying all the one another's that the New Testament has. We're doing all of this in hope that when Jesus comes back face to face, all of the pain that we experience together as a people, it will be worth it. He said that we gather together in a community like this because we all have a shared hope in Christ and his return. And here's something about hope. The direction of your life is determined by whatever your ultimate hope is. The direction of your life is determined by whatever your ultimate hope is. And so if you think about your life right now, think about what you give your life most to. And I promise you, if you trace that, you can trace it to whatever you ultimately hope in, whatever you ultimately long for. Y'all, everybody that you know is guided by hopes and longings. Y'all, it's likely that you find yourself at work. You'll find yourself among people whose longings and hopes are wrapped up in success. It's likely when you find yourself among your friends, 
Your hopes and longing are wrapped up in, in, in whatever pursuit is going on. In the pursuit of a certain status, or the pursuit of a spouse, the pursuit of more square footage. I don't know whatever your hope is. But here's the thing. This is what I want you to know about hopes and longings. Hopes and longings are contagious. You can't exist in any kind of community without their hopes and longings rubbing off on you. Couple of things about hopes and longings. One, hopes and longings are contagious. And two, whatever the hopes and dreams of those around you are, sooner or later, those will become your hopes and dreams. I know that's the case for me. I think about the hopes and dreams I've had throughout my whole life. Remember growing up, I wanted to be a pro basketball player. And the reason why is because everybody on my block wanted to be one. And I'm like, I want to be one too, even though at the time I was like four foot six and I was like in eighth grade, right? Like it wasn't happening. Man, I remember growing up, going to high school, wanted to date a specific girl. It wasn't because I thought she was great. It's because everybody else wanted to date her too. Kept growing up and I wanted a particular career because I saw other people with that career were well thought of. And so therefore, that's why I wanted it. I wanted a certain kind of house with a certain square footage because somebody else had that. And listen, as I traced back all of my hopes and longings, I came to realize two things. One, hopes are contagious. And two, when we keep catching the hopes of the people around us outside of our faith, they will always leave us wanting something more. If we keep catching hopes and longings from others, guess what? We'll be left dissatisfied. We really will be. Y'all, everybody that you are tempted or everything that you are tempted to put your hopes and longings in, if they are anything other than Jesus Christ, you are going to be left disappointed in the end. Y'all, and every day you are constantly bombarded by false hope. Every day you walk around and, you, and people are telling you, become a size two and you will have the life that you always dreamed of. Every day you walk around and they're telling you, get promoted and you'll have the life of your dreams. Get a big family, get ripped, get rich, get admirers. And our hopes get so wrapped up there and all that leads us to is disappointment, disappointment and regret in the end. And you may look at me and you say, Eric, I know that. Why do you keep telling me this? But let me tell you this. You think you know, but the fact of the matter is this. What you think you know is not enough to withstand life in this world. We are like cars out of alignment that as soon as you leave here, life in this world will cause you to drift away from the hope and the community that God has called you to have. And God's tool to correct your alignment is Christian community. Christian community is what God desires to use to recalibrate your hope towards the true north of the day of Christ's return. Y'all, we need to be reminded as I close, band can come back up. There is no greater hope than Jesus Christ. Y'all, he gives us a hope that would not disappoint. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. All other hopes would disappoint you. On Christ the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And I pray that our hope in this community is on that day. That day. And what does this have to do with community? Far be it for us, y'all, to be a community 
that says that our hope is in Jesus, but upon closer examination, it's in another place. Far be it for people to listen in on our conversations and conclude that, hey, you say that your hope is in Jesus, but it seems that all you talk about is finding romance. You say that your hope is in Jesus, but honestly, all you talk about outside of church is your kids, your hope, is in, your hope really is in them. You say your hope is in Jesus, but all you talk about is making money or one in a bigger place or how you want to climb a corporate ladder. Y'all, may it be that this is a community that stirs each other up towards love and good works and light of the day that is coming when we'll see Jesus face to face. Y'all, when we gather together and we sing praises to Jesus and we hear and we hear his word and we take the Lord's Supper and we gather around rooms in our city and we share what God is teaching us. We are raising the sails so that Jesus can make himself bigger in our hearts than the things that we are tempted to hope in. So I pray that we won't forsake this, that we'll live life together, stirring each other up towards love and good works. Let's take a moment, let's pray together. Father, we love you. And God, we are so grateful today that you have not left us alone, that you have placed your spirit inside of us, and you've given us brothers and sisters with this as well. As we travel towards that day, in which we'll see you face to face. We know that there are many toils and snares along the way. There are many opportunities to get distracted. And one of the ways that you keep us is by placing us in the body of Christ. You place us in a context in which we have brothers and sisters to encourage us along the way because willpower alone will not get us to eternity. We need your help. And so, Father, I pray that in our church body, that for those of us who don't have people in our lives to encourage us towards Christ's likeness, I pray that we'll pursue that. I pray that we'll pursue Christian community, whether that's in a church group, whether that's here on Sunday mornings, whether that's classes. I pray that we'll pursue a discipleship environment where there are other brothers and sisters who can encourage us. And I pray as a church that we will take that responsibility to stir one another up towards love and good works. That we understand that when we're in our words and pursuing you each day, that we're in the word, not simply for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And I pray that we'll be in a community that we no longer simply consider, what about me? But that we'll look around and it will be used by you, the God of heaven, to encourage our brothers and sisters to receive your love to the deepest places of who we are, to express your love to a world that desperately needs to experience it. So Father, we need you. We love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.